As I said, I was at the conference this past week, and I've adapted one of the sermons that I preached there to make it suitable and, and applicable for preaching here again this morning. The title of this morning's sermon is Being Right in the Right Way. And the point of the sermon is that both orthodoxy and orthopraxy matter. Both orthodoxy and orthopraxy, specifically orthopraxy with respect to the manner in which we defend and promote orthodoxy, matters. So we must endeavor not only to be right, but to be right in the right way, to have straight doctrine, which is what orthodoxy means, and to have straight practice, which is what orthopraxy means, or right practice. If I'm honest, it is my observation that we conservative Christian folk are often obnoxious people. Many of us are more unpleasant to deal with in times of disagreement or controversy than almost anyone else. If you don't believe me, just think about the scars on your heart. Some of those scars may have been left there by unbelievers, unbelieving family members, unbelieving friends, unbelieving co-workers or employers or, or whatever, but for those of us who have been in the church a long time, I'm willing to bet that you have scars on your heart from conservative Christians. And if you can acknowledge that you have received scars from conservative Christians, is it too much to admit that you may have left some scars on others? as well over the years. I really do think that we conservative Christian folk are, are often some of the most unpleasant and hurtful people to deal with when conflict and controversy arises. And I think the reason for it is as follows. We believe in objective truth. And, and I think to the, to the degree that we are conservative theologically, to that same degree, we believe in objective truth. So in other words, the more conservative theologically you get, the more you believe in objective truth. We believe that there is such a thing as truth. And there is such a thing, therefore, as error. And the other side of the coin is that we believe that there is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as evil. And again, the more conservative theologically you are, I'm not talking about politics here, though perhaps one has a bearing on the other, but the more conservative you are theologically, the more strongly you believe that there is such a thing as truth and error, and that there is such a thing as good and evil. And it is my hypothesis that many conservative Christians have told themselves that so long as they are on the side of truth and goodness, then it, isn't, it really doesn't matter, or at least it's not nearly as important, how you conduct yourselves in contending for what is true and good. So just make sure you're on the right team, you tell yourself. And as long as I'm on the side of truth and goodness, then it's not really that big of a deal how I conduct myself as I contend for truth and goodness. <clears throat> if someone else is hurt 
in the disagreement or the controversy or the conflict. It's always someone else's fault. They're too sensitive. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. Or it's just a blow to their pride, which they obviously needed since they wouldn't freely humble themselves and admit the truth of what I was telling them. And some Christians may have even subconsciously adopted the idea that it is actually the most loving thing to do to hurt people who are wrong and evil. They see themselves as being called in almost every situation to be the surgeon's knife, cutting away what is evil and what is untrue. They are the scalpel in God's hand, and God has blessed this earth with such a man who will be the scalpel. And they think that they are the hammer in God's hand, just smashing that heart of stone, softening it up to receive the good word. Right? Now, of course, it's true. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Right? Proverbs 27 and verse 6. And yes, I know both Jesus and Paul give us examples of firm, hard, even cutting speech. Matthew 23, for example, contains numerous woes to the Pharisees from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Himself. And there are numerous examples in Galatians or Philippians of Paul using hard and firm and cutting speech. I don't dispute that there is a time for hard, firm, cutting speech. In fact, I'm willing to say that some of you in this room probably need to be more courageous and more forthright as you contend for truth and goodness. However, that's not the focus of this morning's sermon. You can't do everything in one sermon. And I'm I'm willing to say this, that a church like ours is not likely to produce over a reasonable length of time people who are overly soft and too accommodating of error and sin. After all, we don't really have a reputation in Barbados for being a wishy-washy church. We don't really have a reputation of being a church that lacks an emphasis on truth and goodness. And as a pastor, I perceive that I am not known for being a soft on truth and willing to say whatever draws the crowd kind of guy. As far as I'm self-aware, I don't think that is my reputation. So I would venture to say that if there is an error that we will be prone to fall into, more so than its opposite, I would suggest that it is a legitimate danger for the sort of church we are and for the sort of man I am that we and I will fail to conform to the description of the Lord's servant given us in this morning's text, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 and 25a. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
My big point this morning is that whenever we are embroiled in any sort of conflict, controversy, or even just disagreement about what is true and what is good, we must endeavor to be the kind of Christians who are not only concerned to be right, but who are concerned to be right in the right way. That's the bullseye that we must always aim at. And we've got to confess and we've got to repent when we miss it. Just like we've got to do with every other sin. And I myself have had to confess and repent, even to some of you, over the last few years of our church's brief history, for not failing to conform to this pattern as I have led and shepherded you. And so I'm preaching to myself here also. Let's begin by looking more in depth at a point that I've alluded to already. This passage assumes that there is good and evil, truth and error. Paul teaches us in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 that we will encounter evil. Patiently endure evil, it says. And Paul teaches us that there are things that we will need to correct. Correct your opponents. So evil and error, according to this passage, are actual things. And not mere social constructs, which may be deconstructed and reconstructed at will as time and circumstances and culture and preferences change. And as Bible-believing Christians, we are on the side of truth and goodness. Brothers and sisters, the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We are not wandering through this world aimlessly as so many are lost. Our brother Tevin prayed a few moments ago, Lord, thank you that we're not stumbling around in the darkness anymore. We have a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Y'all are aware of the Supreme Court nominee who couldn't even define what a woman was. Well, we, we know, for example, what a woman is. It's not even hard for us. A woman is a female created in the image of God to be a complementary counterpart to man, heirs with him of the grace of life. Like, for example, we could just start there and discuss and elaborate. But it's not, this is not a difficult question for us. And you know what? I'm not a biologist either. <laughs> All right? And more significantly... And more significantly than knowing what a woman is, for example, we know, contrary to the religious pluralism and the religious relativism, which is presently supplanting Christianity as the dominant outlook of the Western world, we know, contrary to this religious pluralism and religious relativism, that there remains no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work.
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And Jesus affirms for us in Matthew 5, 18 that even the smallest pen stroke is significant. In the old version, it says, Verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A jot and a tittle is just a little pen stroke, you know. So Jesus is saying every pen stroke in the Scriptures matter. As those who have the Scriptures, we are those who have the truth. And brothers and sisters, we know that there are things which the world is calling good, which are evil. This is low-hanging fruit, I know, but there's so much confusion about it out there that it, that it bears saying and it bears repeating. The whole push for the acceptance of homosexuality, transgenderism, and so forth is evil. And abortion is evil. Roe versus Wade has been in the news again lately because of what's happening in the United States. And let the world rage about the overturning of Roe versus Wade there. But the church will rejoice. We know that certain things are evil in contrast to other things which are good. And we know that God says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Isaiah 5.20 And so we are committed to standing with God on the side of goodness against evil. And as those who have the record of what God has called good and evil, we are equipped to properly and accurately call good evil and evil good. Someone might say, well, who are you to decide what's good and evil? And our answer should be, I'm nobody to decide what's good and evil, but God is. Now, of course, it is by God's grace and by God's grace alone that we are on the side of good and truth. There go we, but for the grace of God. You realize if God's grace was not at work in your life, you might not know what a woman is either. Right? And you might call evil good and good evil. There go we, but for the grace of God. I'm not trying to be self-righteous about this. But I'm trying to emphasize the point that we really are on the side of truth and goodness. And I want you to know that I know that. And this passage teaches us that we must contend for truth and goodness. Merely having the truth and being good personally is not all that is required of the Lord's servant. Pastors are to teach and to, to correct. And by extension, all of God's people are to do so to some extent. As I said in the beginning, that's not the immediate context of this passage. as It's, it's written in one of the pastoral epistles as an instruction from Paul to Timothy. But when Paul says the Lord's servant, though it means pastors in the immediate context, I think we could all say, well, are we the Lord's servants? Are you the Lord's a servant of the Lord? Does God have a double standard where some of his servants can act one way and some of his servants can act another way? Does God not care if pastors, so long as pastors obey 
what's in this verse. He doesn't care what you do in the pews. No, like you, you can see that by extension, whatever we're seeing here is applicable to all of us by inference. And so we are to teach and we are to correct. And as we do that in this world, especially where our where religious relativism and religious pluralism is supplanting Christianity at present in the Western world, to the extent that that succeeds, we are going to experience more and more evil against us for holding to the truth and goodness. And we must endure it. This is an assertion of this verse. The the picture that Paul paints for us here is a picture of a battle in which truth and error, goodness and evil are set in opposition to one another. And it is assumed in this verse that the Lord's servant is on the side of truth and goodness, as we discussed a moment ago, and it is assumed that the Lord's servant is not passively rolling over for error and for evil to win the day. But that the Lord's servant is not only holding ground, but is teaching and correcting and advancing against evil and error. These are words of activity as opposed to passivity. And I think it is at this point of the dawning awareness of our task, where many of the Lord's servants have prematurely started working without listening to everything our Master has said about our task. I've heard enough, they say. Contend for truth and goodness. Got it. And off they go. And and they say, I have read Pilgrim's Progress, and so I know about the character Valiant for Truth. And so I will be a modern day Valiant for Truth. Real life Valiant for Truth. And in Bunyan's words, if I may take what Bunyan said of Valiant for Truth and apply it to myself, I will apply myself to fierce cutting and hacking of my opponents. And I may receive, but I shall also give many wounds to my enemies. Contend for truth and goodness. Got it. And off these Valiant for Truths go. And like a gun that has got off prematurely before it's been aimed, And like a police dog, which has gone beyond its handler's instructions and has bitten an innocent civilian, these valiant for truths are sort of doing what they're supposed to be doing, but sort of not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And they do much harm to many people around them, and they bring much dishonor to Christ, in whose hands they are faulty rifles and in and who is holding the other end of the leash, so to speak. Like a gun which waits until it's aimed and the trigger pulls before it fires, and like a dog which waits for the command before it bites, these men and women would do well to wait for Christ to finish giving the whole set of instructions before they take up the task of contending for truth and goodness. But if they were to wait, say, let me hear everything my master says. 
if they were to wait until Christ finished speaking, if I can put it that way, they might find that they're to contend for truth and goodness less like police dogs and guns than they had at first imagined. And much more like mothers and fathers and lambs ought they to be as they contend for truth and goodness. This passage teaches us that we must battle evil and error with clarity, yes, it says able to teach, but also with kindness and patience and gentleness. I have not even interpreted this verse yet. All I did was tell you what this verse says. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12 says, You know how, like a father with his children, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And he says just a few verses prior in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 7, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. The scripture calls us to a kind ministry, to a gentle ministry, even towards those who we may call our opponents. The scripture calls us even to endure evil against us as we contend for truth and goodness. There ought always to be a clarity to our ministry, for sure. It says here, able to teach. But amidst and alongside the clarity, there ought to be this fatherlike and motherlike kindness and gentleness, as exemplified by Paul and his companions in 1 Thessalonians 2. And there must be the patient endurance of not only childlike folly, as a mother and father have to endure much childlike folly, but there also must be a willingness to endure outright evil. Patiently. Which is nothing more than the willingness to be led as Jesus was, like a lamb to the slaughter. As 1 Peter 2.21 says, To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. Now again, some of you might be inwardly dismissing what I'm saying on the basis that there is a time. There is a time and a place, though, to be hard and firm and even cutting. And I do agree. There is a time to be hard and firm and even cutting. We can marshal many passages in support of this counterbalancing truth. But we must admit that being only and always and or even predominantly hard and firm and cutting is not what the scripture calls us to as the Lord's servants. Where could we find a verse that puts it as strongly the other way in contrast to 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25? Where could we find a verse that balances it by giving us explicit instructions on the other side? Something along these lines. The Lord's servant must take up the cause of truth in each and every situation with equal vigor and intensity. 
he must never scroll past a wrong Facebook post. He must, he must never smile and nod. He must never agree to disagree. He must never let the matter rest until everyone sees the truth. Never mind if people call him quarrelsome. He is a valiant for the truth. And he must be valiant for the truth. He must be able to teach. But if someone is hard-hearted and foolish and does evil against him, then he should publicly castigate and humiliate them, especially if his own reputation is at stake. Because it's better to make someone else look like a weak fool instead of looking like a weak fool oneself. Gentleness and kindness are good, yes, but overrated. Use sparingly. Right. Obviously, I'm being facetious here and satirical. But where would you find a passage that says the Lord's servant must be? And then it, and then it points you as strongly in the other direction as this passage points us in the direction that we are facing today. Obviously, there is no such verse. So in terms of what ought to generally characterize us, and generally describe us. We've got to go with passages like this. To find the bullseye at which to aim. And I would therefore ask you. Are you characterized by being kind to everyone? Are you characterized by being kind to everyone? Yeah, I'm kind to my family. No, that's not what I ask. Are you kind to everyone? Yeah, I'm kind to the people in my church that have the same doctrine as me. No, that's not what I asked you. Are you kind to everyone? <laughs> Would people find it laughable if the accusation was made against you that you are a quarrelsome person? People would be like, him? No way. What are you talking about? He's not quarrelsome. Her? Nah. No, you must be getting mixed up. I know it's not her that you're talking about. Are you characterized by patiently enduring evil? Man, that guy is full of Christ-like humility. I know that, that he could have overcome this opponent. He could have humiliated this person. He could have shredded their arguments. He could have... But like Jesus, he patiently endured. Like a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And he just presses on faithfully and does what is good and what is right and continues contending for truth and goodness. Are you characterized by gentleness in correcting your opponents? As I said at the beginning, maybe some of you are not even characterized by correcting your opponents. Maybe some of you need to focus on the do-gotta-correct aspect of the verse. But like I said, that's not what we're dealing with today. Those of you who are in the habit of engaging meaningfully and bringing correction to wrong ideas where you deem it necessary, are you characterized by doing it with gentleness? If you or I have a reputation of being quarrelsome, unkind, impatient, and harsh, something has gone awfully awry. And yet, if I can adapt Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 5.1, it is actually reported 
that there is quarrelsomeness and unkindness and impatience and harshness in Bible-believing churches. You realize that this is the reputation that conservative Christians have with many unbelieving outsiders. And therefore, it's something that we should talk about since the opinion of outsiders is part of the qualification of elders. Which means that if we just say, well, they're unbelievers. I don't even care what unbelievers say. They're unregenerate. They're blind to the truth. Their opinion doesn't matter to me. Well, you have to face the fact that a qualification of elders is that he be well thought of by outsiders. Which means God doesn't allow us to be so dismissive of the opinion of outsiders. Now, obviously, you're going to find some outsiders that are utterly unreasonable, utterly prejudiced, and no matter what. I mean, people crucified Jesus, right? So it's not, it's not a popularity contest. But it's simply recognizing that if the whole world generally thinks of a church or a pastor in a certain way and they just tell themselves we're not listening because they're unbelievers God doesn't allow that kind of mindset and that kind of mentality there's some legitimacy to the, to the opinions of outsiders and so if the reputation of conservative Christians is that we are quarrelsome and unkind and impatient and harsh that's not a good thing and we can't just immediately say well they're unbelievers so what does it matter we gotta we gotta address this we gotta look at this and we gotta try to we gotta try to repent because if i can borrow james's words in his his letter chapter 3 and verse 10 my brothers these things ought not to be so we're not adorning the doctrine of christ if we conduct ourselves with in such a way that our reputation is the opposite of what God says the Lord's servant the Lord's servant's reputation ought to be the theme of the Caribbean Baptist Heritage Conference this year was the church in the era of COVID-19 and so I pressed this application of our text upon the attendees of the conference. And I think it's illustrative of what I'm trying to say. So it'll be helpful to us here as well, I think. Whether dealing with disagreements about COVID-19 or dealing with disagreements about anything else, we must endeavor not only to be right, but to be right in the right way. Obviously we know some churches complied with public health mandates as our church did. Some didn't. Some sought to find a middle ground where they had conscientious objections to some aspects, but they tried to comply where they were able to, according to their conscience. Some pastors advocated heavily for vaccinations. Some pastors advocated heavily against vaccinations. Some pastors thought it would be prudent and wise to not advocate either way and not take a position on guiding their congregation with respect to the matter of vaccinations. Some churches had online services. Some churches didn't. 
Some intend to continue live streaming after the pandemic is entirely over and behind us. Some will stop live streaming at that point so that people's only option will be to return to church because they've seen the problems that live streaming does in terms of enabling some people's uh, laziness, frankly, with respect to church attendance. Some churches had communion virtually. Some churches, like ours, believe that that is not appropriate or, frankly, not even really possible, and so on and so forth. It's been patently obvious over the last two or three years, two, two and a half. It's been patently obvious that there have been widely varying opinions on many COVID-19 related issues, right? Masks, social distancing, vaccinations, live streaming, obedience to the government, you name it. Now, I am not going to say that there are no right and wrong answers to these questions. Nor am I going to say, well, there might be right, right and wrong answers, but who can really know? I believe that I know the correct answers to many of these questions. And you're, you're laughing, but I know that many of you believe that you know many of the answers to these questions too. Right? We, we all do what we think is true and good. Discussing and resolving these is not my aim today. All I want to put to you is that as we contend for truth and goodness in these areas, we must endeavor not only to be right, but to be right in the right way. And it's been really disappointing to me over the last couple of years to see how Christians have gone bad with one another. Online, in person, church splits. And I think largely due to the part that not only that people were concerned only to be right, and there was not the proper concern to be right in the right way and to handle disagreements in a godly fashion, uh, which contributed significantly to at least, at least many of these conflicts and controversies that have transpired over the last couple of years. We need to be kind to one another. We must be kind to the Christians who disagree with us. We must be kind to the police and the public health officials who create and enforce public health mandates. We must be kind to our presidents and our prime ministers, even my own home and native lands, Justin Trudeau. We, we can't be flying flags like you saw in the truckers' protests that say F anyone, even if it's Justin Trudeau. The Lord's servant must be kind to everyone. And we must not be quarrelsome about the disagreements that we do have. At some point, in many or most cases, we need to be able to just agree to disagree. And should we find ourselves on the other end of evil restrictions and mandates? then we must patiently endure either they themselves or the consequences for defining it, depending on which approach we take on a particular issue. And should you find yourself on the side of truth and goodness, and surprise, there are people who oppose you. <laughs> what a shock. 
even other professing Christians. How are you to deal with these wrong people and these people on the side of evil, anti-good? Well, the biblical answer is gently. You may correct your opponents. In fact, it is good to advocate for truth and goodness, but you must correct gently, using as little force as is necessary to bring about the change of attitude or behavior which is required. Even our beloved John Calvin, that great and courageous reformer, said that we ought to mix a little honey with the vinegar. He said that we ought to have, this is Calvin, quote, a friendly disposition, end quote. Boy, he'd be rolling in his grave about all these modern day Calvinists without friendly dispositions. To mix a little honey with the vinegar, to have a friendly disposition, to be kind and gentle, is not to be equated with being weak or unfaithful. In fact, it is unfaithful to Christ not to be kind and gentle, not to mix a little honey with the vinegar, not to have a friendly disposition, for He commands us to be kind and gentle. And not only has Jesus commanded us to be kind and gentle, but Jesus exemplifies kindness and gentleness. Of course, we know, as I said at the beginning, that Jesus castigated the Pharisees in Matthew 23 for their hypocrisy. And yes, I am aware that Jesus drove money changers out of the temple with a whip. And so on and so forth. But these are the exceptions for Jesus rather than the rule. All of, we, we, I mean, we just finished John and he said, if, if I wrote down all of the things that Jesus did and taught, even heaven itself couldn't contain everything. You know how many ordinary interactions of kindness and gentleness were not deemed noteworthy to write down? You realize we have significant noteworthy events recorded for us in the inspiration of Scripture and it's not a log of what Jesus did hour by hour. And even in what we do have recorded, we see so much kindness and gentleness from Jesus. He's not portrayed to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as an obnoxious figure. We respect the courage of Jesus, the strength of Jesus, the firmness of Jesus, the hardness of Jesus in dealing with those who are evil and wrong. But Jesus is a compelling figure when you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as someone that you would want to come to with your sins. Which is why so many people have been saved reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke and John. Jesus literally said, come to me, I am gentle. And thus it is that so many sinners have read what has been recorded Yes, I know Jesus used the whip and drove people out of the temple. Yes, I know Jesus castigated the Pharisees. But I see that He, is, he came to seek and save the lost and He is good. And He is kind with so many sufferers and sinners that I believe He is, I believe when He says I am gentle. And I find it compelling when He says come to me. And so I will come. 
there was some pushback on this very point at the conference, believe it or not, that Jesus was not characterized by kindness and gentleness. But let me double down on this. Let me double down on this. Isaiah 42, 2 and 3 says, He will not cry aloud or lift up His voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break and a faintly burning wick He will not quench. This is applied to Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. As you read through the Gospels, there is an unmistakable kindness and gentleness to Jesus. And as you read the descriptions of Jesus in the rest of the Bible, there is an unmistakable kindness and gentleness to Jesus. Do you realize that even those who were driven out of the temple with a whip deserved far worse? So if you think that what you're entitled to is niceness and then Jesus drives you out with a whip, how unkind. But if you realize that you're deserving of eternal hell and Jesus merely drives you out with a whip, how kind. <laughs> Listen, the Lord is good to all. And His mercy is over all that He is, has made. I will double down on this point to my grave that Jesus, the consummate servant of the Lord, is gentle and kind. It is a key component of the Gospel. Look at how He has dealt with you if you are a Christian. Surely you have been rebuked by the Lord through His Word, through a friend or a brother and sister in Christ who has brought a correction to you. Surely you have stood ashamed before the holiness of God. And yet, what Christian, what Christian would testify God has not been kind and gentle with me? What a friend we have in Jesus. And if this is not so, what is even the point of being a Christian? If Jesus is harsh and unkind, why even come to Him? Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They enjoyed being around Him so much that He was invited to their parties. There was a reciprocal relationship between Jesus and the tax collectors and sinners, you know. They were friends. Jesus actually fit in with the tax collectors and sinners, even though he was the holiest man who ever lived. Consider an inference that I believe is inescapable. Jesus surely would have had to interact meaningfully with these people at times. Surely he didn't always just smile and nod when they were telling crude jokes and carrying on in indecent ways and so forth. He probably didn't always correct them either, but that's a bit of a digression. But the manner in which Jesus engaged these people as they lived out their sinful lives right in front of Him in the context of friendship with Him, the manner in which Jesus engaged these people was such that He was continually invited back he had a reputation for spending time with tax collectors and sinners. Brothers and sisters, I think this means that he must have been kind and gentle. 
even with them. We are not called to be kind and gentle to our friends only, but even our opponents, our enemies, if you will. This is at the command of Jesus. And this is in keeping with the example of Jesus who has been so kind and gentle to undeserving tax collectors and sinners like you and me. Jesus not only <clears throat> was kind <clears throat> in eating and drinking with them and so on and so forth, but Jesus laid down His life for them. For sinners like you and I. And even some from among the party of the Pharisees whom He castigated in Matthew 23. We learn later in Acts that some of them came to Christ. Which means Jesus died not only for the tax collectors and sinners, but for the Pharisees. And in the very act of laying down His life for His people to save them from their sins, He prayed for the people who crucified Him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Our Jesus is kind and gentle and commands us to be kind and gentle too. Not just to people with good doctrine and morally acceptable lives, but to tax collectors and sinners, persecutors and opponents. Reasoning from the greater to the lesser than, if even those who are enemies and ungodly and outside Jesus with morally dubious lives and all manner of error, if we ought to be kind and gentle even to them, then listen, reasoning from the greater to the lesser, we should also be kind to the brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with us about various things. We must be kind and gentle even to the Pentecostals and Charismatics. Even as we teach about the sufficiency of Scripture and the foundational role of the apostles and the prophets and so forth, some of the areas that we disagree we must be kind and gentle to the Arminians, even as we teach about the doctrines of grace. God forbid that we Reformed Baptists have a reputation of being unkind and harsh to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to the family of God. Yes, we have our disagreements. Yes, we believe in truth. Yes, we can talk about it. But God forbid that we be anything but gentle and kind to the family of God. People that Jesus loves. People that Jesus has bound Himself to. If Jesus has bound Himself to them, then how could we claim to be connected to Jesus and yet not also bound to them? And obviously, circling back around to the conference theme, we got to be kind of gentle to those who disagree about COVID-19 related issues. Not going to belabor that point because this is not the conference. So we must endeavor to be right. But we must also endeavor to be right in the right way. Let us not be like dogs who bite a little early, knowing that biting is part of our job. Let us not be like guns that just shoot, knowing that shooting is part of our job. You've got to bite 
when directed, as directed. You gotta shoot where directed, as directed. And you gotta be mother-like, father-like, and lamb-like at the same time. It feels like something of an oxymoron to fight like a lamb led to the slaughter. Right? To fight like a mother. Although if you ever run into a mother bear on a trail, then that might take on a whole other meaning. But yeah, there are oxymorons in Christianity, aren't there? Like, crown him with many crowns, right? Who died that we might live, right? I've been preaching long enough. Let me not get started. (laughs) Correct with... Correct, yes, but correct with gentleness. Be kind, not only to those close to you, but to, to everyone. And not only those you approve of in doctrine and practice. Be patient as you endure evil. Be able to teach, yes, let clarity ring forth. Contend for truth and goodness. But, but be kind, be patient, be gentle. Counterbalance whatever harshness is necessary, whatever hardness, firmness, cuttingness, is necessary as you contend for truth and goodness. Counterbalance that with so much kindness and patience and goodness on the other side of the scale that the accusation that you are personally quarrelsome, impatient, and unkind would be laughable. And would that we would be that kind of church that would counterbalance whatever hardness, firmness, cuttingness is necessary as we contend for truth and error, that we would nevertheless have a reputation of being a kind church and a gentle church and a patient church. Let us endeavor then to be right in the right way. This is the command of Jesus. and This is in keeping with Jesus' own example, who was characterized by kindness and gentleness throughout the course of his earthly life and is kind and gentle with us still.